This week we are in Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 26. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Genesis 4, uh, 16 through 26. If you're new to church, or it's been a long time since you've been in church, uh, you can typically expect in a normal worship service that we're going to sing a few songs, and we're going to pray, and we're going to... um, to hear a message from the Bible, and we, we really kind of limit ourselves to a particular passage. And here at this church, uh, I don't preach topical messages, uh, but we preach what's called expository, which is just book by book, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And we feel like this is the best way for our spiritual formation, uh, because oftentimes Scripture will bring up something that I would never choose to preach topically on. And, uh, and so as you preach the Word in an uh, expository way, which is just another way to say verse by verse or chapter by chapter, uh, my, our hope is that we'll gain some mastery or at least an introduction over that particular passage that we're studying. So today it's 4, 16 through 26. And, and so if you want to take notes, uh, you'll have some, uh, some solid anchor points to understand not just this passage, but how it fits into the overall message of the Bible. At this point, I think I've stalled long enough for you to find the text. It's the first book of the Bible, uh, chapter 4, and we're going to finish that this morning. Just to catch you up on where we are, at this point in the book of Genesis, um, there's been a significant population explosion. And we're going to find out in Genesis 5 that Adam and Eve, Adam lives to 930 years and has many, 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 many sons and daughters. Uh, And so there are enough people on earth from Adam and Eve to populate uh, the entire uh, area where they started near the Garden of Eden. There were new families, families, uh, new marriages, uh, new babies, uh, grandbabies, great-grandbabies, and you can do a lot of procreation in 930 years, right? Um, especially under those conditions. We remember we talked about uh, the Earth's atmosphere as a sort of hyperbaric, oxygenated, super uh, protected canopy above of water. And, and in this sort of greenhouse atmosphere, people lived longer lives and there was less exposure to the sun's harmful rays, and so there are plenty of people, and they're living longer lives, um, and so that's what's happened up until here. But let me just make this one important observation before we get into our text. You might think that Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, when they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had commanded them, don't eat from it or you will surely die. And when they did, uh, sin was introduced into the world and and God cursed the serpent and God cursed the ground and God made uh, childbirth a more painful process. And and so sin was introduced into the world and Adam and Eve experienced shame and guilt and they, they felt shame because of their nakedness and they were expelled or driven from the garden. And so we might think that sin would have this sort of long trickle effect that hundreds of years would go by before the depravity of man would sink to these great levels, right? We don't see that at all. We see that immediately with their first children that were made aware of, 
that it doesn't take long for sin, and not just sin, but real wickedness and evil to thoroughly invade the human heart. Immediately after their fall, this family homicide could air on any Dateline or 2020 or any crime show that you might watch. And even in the wake of Cain's murdering of Abel, we don't see any remorse. There's no grieving for Abel. Um, Cain doesn't go to Adam and Eve and apologize to his parents. He doesn't try to make things right with his other siblings or relatives. Immediately, there's no remorse, there's no regret, there's no grief at all. Sin has thoroughly and uh, completely saturated the human heart. And I just want you to understand that wherever there are people, uh, there is sin. There is no place that you can escape. For wherever people are, there you will find the potential, the human capacity for great evil and wickedness. Maybe you remember uh, the story, uh, the author, William Golding, in his book, The Lord of the Flies. Anybody ever read uh, Lord of the Flies? I didn't read it. I just saw the movie. I just want you to, I just want to be intellectually honest here. Um, but in that book, it's a group of British schoolboys who are stranded uh, and they go onto an island and try to govern themselves. And it's not long before circumstances and groups form, and it doesn't take too long for what we would think of as innocent 10, 12-year-old boys turning into absolute violent beasts. They start out normal and resort to violence and murder, and it's a shocking picture of the capacity for human violence. Yesterday I had breakfast with four pastors, four African-American pastors that minister in Philadelphia. And their context in which they do ministry, the number of funerals they do, the number of violent crimes that they experience, and throughout the two or three hour brunch, I realized that a lot of us start life with hope, right? Hope that we can do better, hope that our life will be better, hope that we'll have a future. And and then sometimes we'll succumb and get into a position of hopelessness where things maybe take a turn for the worse and we lose hope. And then despair is somewhere down here when they're, not only have you lost all hope, and not only have you gone from hopelessness, but despair is that sense that nothing in your life will ever get better. And they minister starting out right there in places where there are just circles left on the concrete from places where they found bullet casings. This is some of the neighborhoods where they minister. It reminds us of Genesis 6 in a few weeks. The Bible will say that, um, well, I'll just read it. It says that... um, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I just say all that to make sure that you understand that that we don't identify each other as good people. The Bible knows no language of humanity being good. Generally good, occasionally messing up. Our picture 
scripturally is the human heart is depraved and wicked, sinful beyond repair. And this shows up in uh, Adam and Eve immediately. There's another poem called Invictus uh, by William Ernest Henley. You might remember it, the most notable lines, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Cain could have written this poem. It describes darkness and self-lordship. He wrote, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's those last two lines that depict a sin-saturated heart. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of of my soul. Cain could have written that in his self-absorbed, self-important, it's all about me, and we're just going to see it trickle down through the generations until Lamech, at the end of our passage today, says if Cain gets avenged seven times, then I get avenged 77 times. The point of today's passage, just so you know where we're going, our text today is going to cover seven generations from Adam to Lamech, and then next week we cover seven generations from Seth to Noah. Two passages of Scripture that contrast and compare the ungodly, godless line of Cain and those who fear the Lord in the line of Seth. And so just considering Cain's legacy, I want you to see today in this text that Cain's Legacy made advancements in civilization and agriculture and arts and industry. And in many ways, they formed a a society together, but they continued to degenerate morally and sinfully, resulting in a legacy of evil and murder and godlessness and lawlessness. And my hope for us today, the, the goal of my sermon is that you will see that your decisions today affect future generations. You don't live in some isolated, non-influential situation where your sinful choices don't have ripple effects out into generations. And I also want you to see how imperative it is for us to stay close to the Lord. If you're a believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, my hope is that you will stay really close really close to the cross, that your heart, you will guard it as a wellspring of life, that, that you will maintain a sensitive, sincere, close fellowship with the Lord in the fear of the Lord, knowing what happens if you don't. Never stop presenting yourself to the Lord in fear and reverent submission to Jesus Christ, walking closely with Him and guarding your wayward heart carefully. So let's get into the text, verses 16 through 26, and then I'll make a couple of application points. Starts in verse 16. Uh, it says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What does this mean, away from the presence of God? Was the Lord still dwelling nearby? 
Now, was His presence still somehow active and available on the earth? It made me ask the question, did these first humans still have access to God's presence even though He had driven them out of the Garden of Eden? And apparently the answer is yes. And, and we can see it in the text. In, in Genesis 4, verses 3-7, through 7, you see Cain and Abel coming to the Lord, having uh, made offerings to the Lord. And, and this uh, exchange between the Lord and Cain and Abel, uh, it, it appears like the Lord reads Cain's face. Why is your face downcast? And he has a conversation with him. And, and Cain has a conversation with the Lord uh, about his offering and about his punishment. And so it appears appears though the plain reading of the text is that the Lord is accessible and he's near and his presence is still there although maybe not uh, in the Garden of Eden they had been um, taken out of the Garden of Eden driven from the Garden of Eden but this text leads us to think that God had not abandoned first family this first humanity that he was still nearby And we call these physical manifestations theophanies. You may have heard that term before. A theophany is a manifestation of God's presence, uh, typically in the Old Testament, uh, where God is taking on humanity. And it's a visible appearance of God in the Old Testament. A Christophany uh, refers to Jesus' appearances to His followers after the ascension. But a theophany is a pre incarnation of sorts. And you see these all throughout the Bible. Remember when Abraham uh, sees three angels and they tell him, should we hide from Abraham what we're about to do? And and he sees these three angels and he, he asks them to come and eat and he prepares food for them and he sits down with them and they tell him what they're about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And later we read that only two of the angels move on, but the angel of the Lord that Abraham had met with, he offered a sacrifice to and appealed to. These are theophanies. Manifestations of God in the Bible that are tangible to a human. And so, in some way, Genesis 4 leads us to believe that that if Cain is able to um, leave the presence of the Lord and settle in the land of Nod, east of Eden, that God is near. He says he went to uh, Nod, east of Eden. And, and when I looked this up, it says uh, no one knows where the land of Nod was located. The only reference that we have is that it was east of Eden. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't mention Nod again. Cain's settling east of Eden implies that he was further removed from the garden than Adam and Eve and the others were dwelling. And this is... Uh, <clears throat> in line with his punishment. He was to live the life of an outsider, of a vagabond, of a wanderer, of someone without uh, any sort of roots or any sort of way in which to provide for himself. It says, Cain lived life without roots in isolation. And for his sin, Cain was made a castaway and became a godless, hollow person in the land of Nod. Upon separating himself from God, Cain built a society detached from God. And the Bible tells us that the children of Cain followed in this path and established this godless civilization. That's what one of my commentaries tells me. Verse 17, it says that Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now listen. Listen. 
This is one of those questions that I get a lot. Where did Cain get his wife, right? People want to know where did Cain get his wife. In the Bible, it doesn't leave room for us to say that God created lots and lots and lots of people. It says that God created Adam and Eve and that from their offspring were many more families. Another commentary says, since Adam and Eve were the first and only human beings, their children would have no other choice but to intermarry. And God did not forbid interfamily marriage until much later when we get to the book of Leviticus chapter 18. <clears throat> the reason that incest today often results in genetic abnormalities is that when two people of similar genetics have children together, there's a high risk of recessive characteristics becoming dominant. Um, but when people from different families have children, it's highly unlikely that both parents will carry those same dominant recessive traits. The human genetic code has become increasingly polluted over the centuries, and genetic defects are multiplied and amplified, passed down from generation to generation. But here's the point of this commentary note. <clears throat> Adam and Eve did not have these genetic defects. <clears throat> and that enabled them in the first few generations of their de- de- descendants to have a far greater quality of health than we do now. And Adam and Eve's children had few, if any, genetic defects. And as a result, it was safe for them to intermarry. Still gives us a little bit of the ick factor, right? We still don't necessarily like that answer, but it's what we're presented with. We learn that Cain built a city. Now in the curse from sin, Adam's punishment was different from Cain's, right? In Adam's punishment, Adam wasn't cursed. The ground was cursed. In Eve's punishment, Eve wasn't cursed. Childbearing was made more painful. But this is not the case in Cain's curse. Look at verse 11 through 12. And now you are cursed from the ground. So there was a connection in Cain being cursed and his work with the ground. It says in verse 12, When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So Cain was cursed, and he had no hope of planting and reaping and benefiting from the work of his own hands. He could plant crops all day long without any hope that he would yield a harvest. So he had no choice but to start a civilization that would directly benefit him, that he would benefit from the labor of others. And surely in a situation like that with a violent, sinful, wicked man, surely he ruled over the city of Enoch in a violent, threatening way. Now we're going to rip through five generations in verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. There are a couple of similarities that we can see here. In Seth's genealogy, we know that Enoch and Lamech are repeated names and drastically different. We see some similarities between Methushael and Mahujael and Methuselah in Seth's line. Those are some similarities. But the text doesn't really give us a lot of pertinent information about these five generations. It's almost like it wants us to fast forward to see the totality, the end completion of this line of seven generations. So look at verses 19 through 24. And we see uh, the completion. Seven generations down from Adam in Cain's line. A picture of his um, genealogy in this family. Verse 19 says, Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other was Zillah. <clears throat> 
Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Uh, Zillow also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What conclusions can we draw from Lamech's family? Just in seven generations, we can see that Cain's line actually made advancements in society. You've got um, Jabel, who is the father of all those who uh, oversee livestock and agriculture. Uh, You've got Jubal, who is... um, gifted musician, making uh, musical instruments. And you see Tubal-Cain forging all kinds of metalwork. The foundations of any society include those three aspects, agriculture, industry, arts. And so in many ways, we can see that they are advancing. Question, can sinful man thrive outside of the presence of God? In God's common grace over mankind, you you remember verses like He causes the sun to shine on the godly and the wicked, the evil. They all experience this sort of common grace that God gives. Marriage is a common grace gift. I'll do a wedding for uh, two unbelievers or two believers, but, but I won't do a marriage for anyone who is a believer and unbeliever by conviction, but... But I'm glad to do weddings for people who are both unbelievers. Now, I require of every marriage I do uh, seven sessions of premarital counseling, and and I present the gospel, and I and I unapologetically present the Bible's uh, viewpoint for a marriage. But I'll, this comes from the idea that marriage is a common grace gift. It's something that God allows unbelievers. Unbelievers can have great marriages. Unbelievers can have great businesses. God's goodness, His general goodness and the common grace gifts that He gives to all people means that people who are far from God in their hearts can still thrive and enjoy God's creation and and life. Yes, man can thrive to some degree outside of the presence of God. But that's different than thriving spiritually and having a connection with God and experiencing all the blessings of salvation that we understand. Joy and peace and faith and trust and provision and God's family. All those things that we cherish as Christ followers. Forgiveness of sins. So Cain's line built a thriving civilization to some degree, but but I want you to notice the moral state and decay within that civilization. <clears throat> we see immediately that Lamech blew off the marriage covenant and instituted polygamy. And we understand that this was not God's intention because in the garden when Adam and Eve came together, we have a clear example of God's plan for marriage, right? 
In Genesis 2.24, uh, it says to us right away, Therefore a man, singular, shall leave his father and his mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. And so, biblically, the picture for marriage is always one man and one woman in a one flesh committed union together. We see in Abraham and the patriarchs that they practice some sort of uh, polygamy. But nowhere does God bless that. If anything, you see complications and distortions and struggles and all these terrible things that come from that. God's intention was one man and one woman. Lamech blew that off completely and exposed Ada and Zillah to this shameful, humiliating, polygamous relationship. And what about Ada and Zillah? I mean, their names mean uh, ornament and tinkling. If that gives you any idea of their character, um, it's hard to imagine. Uh, We don't know much more about their life, but we do know that they were married to a violent man. He apparently killed a young man who no doubt would have been a close relation to him. And he wounded this, this young man wounded Cain, uh, Lamech in some way, and so he killed him. And he not only killed him, but look, um, look at the, uh, the, the verses 23 and 24. He wrote some weird song about it, right? This is a weird poem that he wrote and sang or presented to his wives about it, telling them, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So we understand that he's a violent man. He's a polygamist. Uh, He not only kills this man, but he celebrates it in this sort of threatening song. And then he spurns the justice of God by taking on the punishment designed just for Cain and not receiving the punishment of Cain, but then uh, enacting in some distorted way the vengeance of God upon himself in an inflated way, right? If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He assumes this prideful position that God owes him a greater protection than Cain, and that he has the right or the duty to avenge himself seventy times seven. This reminds us of Jesus when Peter asks him, how many times should I forgive somebody who wrongs me? Up to seven times? And what does Jesus say? No, 70 times seven. Up to 490 times a day. How different was that than Lamech? Who would avenge 70 times seven while Jesus instructs us to forgive 70 times seven. Verses 25 through 26 We see that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son named Seth. And Seth bore a son and called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's where we're going to start next week with Seth and his line of those who began to call upon the name of the Lord. And if you want to read ahead, I encourage you to read ahead and to try to pick out the ways in which Seth's line operates differently than Cain's line. <clears throat> but what can we apply from this text that we just read today? What should you and I do as a result of this passage? 
Let me suggest to you uh, two applications, two things that you can uh, learn from this passage and put into practice today, because every sermon has to end with the answer to the question, so what, right? If we left here and just stopped the sermon at this point, you would just have some nice information. But let me suggest at least two applications. Number one, leave a legacy of faith and fear of the Lord. We see in this passage Cain's legacy, seven generations. Cain, Enoch, Irad, Mahujael, Methushael, Lamech, and into the seventh, Jabel, Jubal, Tubal, Cain, and Nama. Kent Hughes writes that here in Genesis 4, homicide is the centerpiece. But this is far more than a record of the first murder. It's about the way of Cain that we read about in Jude 11. What is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is deceit and violence and wickedness. It's the corruption and slide of a heart away from God into notorious sin. Larry brought this out last week in 1 John 3.12. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Cain was of the evil one. Thoroughly saturated. In his heart, not an ounce of him was seeking God. Anytime I present the gospel to someone, uh, I try to make it clear that rather than saying, you know, we're generally good people who mess up occasionally, that the act of sin thoroughly saturates us. And cuts us off, separates us from God. And sometimes I'll draw a picture and I'll depict it as um, you know, someone who is a Christ follower, stays near to the cross, and they are embracing Jesus, spiritually staying very near to Him. But someone who has sinned has consciously or unconsciously, through the act of sin, engaged in willfully walking away and walking in disobedience and rebellion. To God. That's what Adam and Eve's first sin was. It was rather than obeying God and yielding to Him and being surrendered to Him, they turned their back and walked in disobedience to Him, walking away from Him. I did this for many years. Many of you did as well. Just an outright rebellion. I denied that there was a God. I didn't even believe that there was a God. and uh, My life reflected that. In my life looked like somebody who had rebelled from God and walked away from God. But there was a time in my life when uh, I repented and the circumstances of my life got to a point where I no longer was running away from God, but, but in repentance I began to start to pray in secrecy. I used to take this big Catholic Bible off the mantle of our house. It's like a decorative piece. I don't even know why we had a Bible in our house, but we had this big Catholic Bible and it's too embarrassed to read it in front of my family. And so after everybody would go to bed, I would sneak out into the living room and I would get that big thing and I'd put it on my bed and it like a big, you know, I'd flip through it and I read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and dropped off somewhere in Deuteronomy. I don't even know how I made it through Leviticus as a lost, unbelieving person, but, but I was searching. I was seeking God. I was looking for Him. I was praying to Him. And, and this, in contrast to my willful rebellion against Him, was me turning to Him and seeking Him and pursuing Him and asking questions of Him. And, and the closer I got, the more light 
and life and people and believers would cross paths with me and minister to me and share scripture with me. And I remember um, writing a letter to my dad's cousin, Steve Largent, and um, professional football player. And, and uh, every time I would write him a letter, he would write me back with these verses. So I went to one of my young life leaders one day. I said, what does I-Core 9 mean? Or what does JN 316 mean? Or what does this mean? What does that mean? And, and so every time he would write me a letter back, he would include these verses for me to look up. And I would get a Bible and I'd find all these were activities that led me to seek God. And it wasn't salvation. I hadn't yet surrendered and believed on Jesus. That would happen later. But, but in a real sense, I wasn't walking away from the Lord. Cain's legacy was that of running away from God at high speed. And its reflection was that he was of the evil one. Listen, I was of the evil one. Anyone born into this world is born not a child of God, but a child of sin. We are born sinful. And if you don't believe that, or if you struggle with that, if you think that we're born good and that we just kind of mess up sometimes, then you misunderstand the message of the Bible. Often described in terms like total depravity, right? Meaning that we are incapable of not sinning. Does that make sense? Even if you're wrestling with that and you say, Gib, I don't know if I believe that. Listen, put your name on a card there and we'll have a conversation. You can buy me barbecue all week long and we'll have all the conversations you want about, uh, I'm a sucker for barbecue. And, uh, and so if you want to talk more about that, I'm more than willing to. I know it experientially. It was very, the hardest people to bring to faith in Christ are religious people. Matter of fact, it was religious people who crucified Jesus. Those who were self-righteous and did not think they had any sin, right? Jesus said they're like whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23. They're, they're clean on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. Listen, that's the worst news you'll hear is that we're born in sin and we can't escape sin. But the best news you'll hear is that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a punishment for that sin, providing for you, exchanging your sinful heart for a clean, holy, righteous heart. That's the good news. But the warning for us is clear from Cain's legacy is that your decisions today affect future generations. So if you choose to walk away from the Lord, it will have a disastrous effect on your legacy. You may think that your sin is isolated. You may trick yourself into believing that your sinful private decisions have no influence whatsoever that they only have short-term effects and, and no real consequences, that your sin is secret and doesn't affect anyone else. But listen, Cain's decision in his heart, long before he walked away from the presence of the Lord, to walk in willful, sinful disobedience had far-lasting consequences. Let me just show you an illustration of this. Uh, a few years ago, uh, somebody traced the lineage of Jonathan Edwards the Puritan pastor, first president of Princeton, a very godly man. Some people consider him the greatest mind that America has ever produced theologically and philosophically. And as a result of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards' godly influence over their children and their children's children, uh, a 
sociologists traced from his line here in purple, 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 75 military officers, 80 public servants, 60 authors, 60 doctors, 30 judges, 100 pastors, 100 lawyers, three U.S. senators, and a vice president. Now listen, that's a good legacy, right? Any one of you would be glad to say that my great-great-grandfather was Jonathan Edwards. Not that this resulted necessarily in godliness in all these professions, but these are people who contributed positively to society. And at the same time of Jonathan Edwards, there was a criminal named Max Jukes. And the same sociologist later traced the lineage of Max Jukes and Jonathan Edwards and put them side by side in the study. And Max Jukes' legacy was that 310 of his family line died as paupers, 150 criminals, seven murderers, over 100 drunks, and 190 prostitutes. He explains, um, this man, the sociologist, educator, A.E. Winship, he explains that Edwards, a godly man, was also hardworking, intelligent, and moral, and much of his capacity and talent, intensity, and character uh, of the more than 1,400 members of Edwards' family is due to their godly upbringing and influence. Max Jukes' legacy, however, came to people's attention when the family trees of 42 different men in the New York prison system were traced back to him, living in the same time period as Edwards. And Jukes' descendants, you can see on the screen there. And he concludes with this, these contrasting legacies provide an example of what some call the five-generation rule, which states that how a parent raises their child... The love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they offer, the education they provide influences not only their children, but the four generations to follow, either for good or for evil. What a challenging thought. If someone studied your generations, four generations later, what do you want them to discover? The life you live, the decisions you make today will determine the legacy that you leave. And the warning for us is clear. Your decisions affect future generations. That brings us to a second application um, from the text today. And that is that if you're a Christ follower, if you're already near to the cross, clinging to Christ and repented of your sins, believing and trusting in Jesus... Do not depart from the Lord. Do not depart from the Lord, not just for your future children's sake or for the future generation's sake. I I myself am from a legacy of five generations of men who had affairs. Adulterers and alcoholics with multiple marriages. All rejected Jesus Christ. And one of the first convictions that God ever gave me as a brand new believer was leave a legacy different than what you inherited. And it's only by the grace of God that I'm incapable of doing that in my flesh. Only by the grace of God as I stay close to Him do I have a snowball's chance of seeing my children's children's children worship the Lord. So if you're in Christ today, do not depart from the Lord. Because the, the truth is, 
you don't need more information about the Bible. You don't need more information about God. You don't need more cultural information. You don't need to know Hebrew or Greek. More than anything, your heart needs to stay close and tender and sensitive to the Lord. People who reject God, who walk away from Him, it's not because they don't know about God. It's because their hearts willfully... Well, Romans 1 says that they suppress the truth. And so God gave them over to sexual sin, to homosexual sin, and to a debased mind. It's the suppression of sin. Listen, the truth is you can be far from the Lord, and it doesn't mean geographically, but spiritually, emotionally, and mentally as well. The truth is you can be right here in this room, right now. You can be one of the most faithful church attenders in this congregation, and your heart can be far, far from the Lord. You can have knowledge about the Bible. Some of the meanest people I know can quote Scripture. And it's just true. Your Bible knowledge doesn't make you godly because you memorize Scripture, because you give financially, because you serve. None of those things equate to godliness or Christ-likeness. That's why oftentimes people come to church and they say, I'm never going back. Why? Because religious people can be cruel. First time I walked into a church when I most needed God, I had this wadded up, wrinkled shirt. I thought, I just have to have a button-up shirt to go to church. And I didn't even think about ironing as a 16-year-old, 15-year-old. And the first thing that happened is older man walked up and he said, what did you do, sleep in your shirt last night? And my first thought was, I didn't, I didn't see him yesterday and I didn't wear this shirt yesterday. Was, I was, didn't pick up on his insult. It took me 15, 20 minutes into the Bible study before I realized, oh, he was saying that I don't look right. And I didn't, I didn't go back. Some of the most religious people you know are some of the meanest, cruelest people. Don't be fooled. Knowledge does not equate to godliness. Your heart must be Jesus's. Surrendered completely. You can be right here every week and and have zero appetite for the food of the Word. This doesn't satisfy you. You can't wait for the sermon to be over. That may say more about me than the Bible. I get that. But you may have no appetite for singing, for praying. Your weekly life, this may be the one moment that you endure the Bible or you endure a sermon or you endure the Word, but your heart can be far from the Lord and you can be right here. You don't have to be like Cain and move east of Eden in some faraway land. Some people do that. Move away. But listen, if you're going to fall away, the departure is going to start right here in your heart. Long before you ever decide to leave your small group or before you start to stop coming to church altogether, in your heart, you're going to drift right in this room. And sometimes it's an immediate, decisive departure. I'm never coming back and I don't believe this anymore. But more often than not, it's just a slow drift as some other priority takes center stage in your life and other things become more important to you. Cain moved away from the Lord and the results were at least seven generations of sin, violence, immorality, and wickedness. So let me leave you with this. There are multiple warnings in the New Testament. I made a list of 25 or more verses. I'm not going to read them all here, but listen to some of these warnings in the New Testament that urge you to watch yourself 
to guard your heart, to protect your heart, to, to keep close to the Lord, and not only yourself, but those around you. So in the pews, in the chairs, in this room, those who especially aren't here, except for Becca, she's excused today, and maybe Taryn and Jacob. But for those who aren't here and for those who are here, there's a warning in the New Testament to watch yourself and to watch others as you stay close to the Lord. John 15, 4, Jesus says, Abide in Me and I in you. Remain is how some versions translate it. Luke 12, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like those who are waiting for the Master to come home so that when He opens the door, when He comes and knocks, they will be ready. Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake and ready when He comes. Colossians 1, 23-24 says, You once were alienated and hostile in your mind. You did evil deeds, but now He has reconciled you in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel. Do you hear that condition? You have a responsibility to present your heart. The Romans 12, 1 through 2, your spiritual act of worship is in daily, regularly, sometimes multiple times a day, presenting yourself before the Lord and, and confessing sin, the spiritual breathing where you, if, if the moment you acknowledge, have sin that you uh, recognize, you, you immediately begin to confess it and get right with the Lord. And in doing so, you keep your heart near to the Lord. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Almost the whole book of Hebrews touches on this theme of endurance. Just read Hebrews 12, 1-2, Hebrews 13, 17, Hebrews chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Steve Largent always signed with that. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. You know what that's telling us? In every way, get yourself near to the Lord and stay. just hold Him. Stay close. Don't allow that drift in your heart to become a drift away from God. Proverbs 4, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. God's warning to Cain was sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to master you, but you must master it. Listen. This is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. You will not master sin in your flesh. And if you think you did, you struggle with the sin of pride. (laughs) The minute you think you got it is the minute you, you just committed that sin. This is only possible through faith in Jesus. He's the one who took your sin and punishment on Himself at the cross. You can never have victory over sin and its disastrous consequences outside of faith in Jesus. My hope for you, sincerely, if you're a believer, that you would put your faith in Christ and that you would remain in Him, abide in Him, stay close. Not just for your future generations. Not just for some bragging list of senators and doctors and contributors. But for the sake of your own soul. The end of 1 Corinthians 9.24, verse 27, Paul says, I preach in such a way so that I myself might not be disqualified 
If after preaching I myself should lose the prize, cherish your salvation. If your appetite is far from God's Word and from prayer, renew it before you lose that. If there's somebody here that's drifted from the Lord and you you don't see them, you haven't seen them in a while, it's your responsibility, church, to reach out. To go beyond. It's too much for me and a couple of elders to try to keep track of attendance and make sure everybody's here every week. If you know somebody, it's our role to help nurture them, to build them up and to encourage them in the faith. Father, we thank You for Your Word today and for its strict warning to us that that we must remain close to You. Uh, Let us be uh, thoroughly warned from the example of Cain and his generations through to Lamech, that our sinful decisions have disastrous consequences, not just on ourselves, but also on all those who will come after us. And so, Lord Jesus, would you grant us the grace? Would you preserve us in your faith? Would you help us to stay close to you? And if there are anyone, uh, those here today who are hearing my voice, I pray that if they've not yet come to know you, that they would repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in you, Jesus. I pray that you would use today's message for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.